Good morning, Salt City. If I don't know you, my name is Jordan. And if you're bummed that we're not in person, I am too. It feels like there's about a football field between me and the camera right now and just a bunch of empty chairs, which is not my favorite way to preach a sermon. I miss you guys, but just want to encourage you. Um, You know whose plan this is? God's. He's behind this. He's behind everything that's going on in our world, and we can trust him. And so even if it's not our preference to be back online, God's doing something with this. I don't know exactly what it is, but here's one of the amazing truths that I was trying to remind myself of before I came up here is that by the Holy Spirit, God is with us. So we are physically distant, but you are not distant from God at all. God himself is with you in your room right now, which is a stunning reality, and he wants to talk to you through his word. That's amazing. And so just because things are different, that reality doesn't change. And, and, and just in general, as Christians, guys, we just roll with stuff. I, one of the things that I'm praying for you and praying over my life is Philippians 4, um, that, that we would have a peace that transcends all understanding And that regardless of what the circumstances are, that we would just be joyful because we're Christians. And that's what Christians do. And so we're just going to keep going. We're going to see what God does in this moment. We're going to open up the Bible and talk about it today. And I am joyful in general, or at least trying to be. But honestly got pretty mad at the Bible this week as I was studying for this message, which is a weird place to be when you're prepping for a sermon. But we're in Jesus' sermon on the mount, and, and I don't know about you guys, I know not everybody is having the same experience with 2020, but I feel like 2020 is like standing in a boxing ring with my hands behind my head and just taking kidney shots for days and just getting knocked over and like standing back up. And so when I go over to the side of the ring, I want Jesus to kind of just like give me a water bottle, kind of pat my brow a little bit, tell me everything's fine. And I feel like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of just punched me in the gut again this week. And it, and it was frustrating. Okay, let me, let me give you examples. All right, Matthew 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 10. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, and if those didn't get you, listen to this one. Here's the kicker, Matthew 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What do you do with that? You know the little phrase, like, nobody's perfect? It feels like Jesus missed the memo on it. And it's it's hard because I feel this tension between what Jesus is expecting of me and who I actually am. And then I'm supposed to stand in front of you and teach it when I can't live up to it myself. And it was really frustrating for me. But here's what I'm learning. Is that I think the tension that I'm feeling is right. I think Jesus is actually trying to intentionally pull us into that tension, but the angst that I feel about the tension in my soul is wrong. And so here's what I want to do. I want to pull you guys into the tension of the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and in the tension where Jesus reveals to us how badly we fall short, but I also want to pull you into the recognition of, or or the realization that, that if you can own it, how much you've fallen short, what that can do in your life and the better life that you could live. All right, so, so let's get into it. Here's how the sermon functions. Verses 1 through 16 is Jesus' introduction to this world-famous sermon. Last week, we talked about the Beatitudes, the first part of that 
introduction. We'll get back to the second half of it, which is, which is where Jesus talks about how we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We'll circle back to that. But after that introduction, he starts to get into the body of the text. And in verse 17 through 20, he gives what I think is the thesis statement and key interpretive principle for this entire sermon. And so this, this, uh, the concepts that we're looking at in 17 through 20 will keep coming back to week after week as we study this sermon from Jesus. And here's what Jesus is about to talk about is his relationship to the law and consequently what our relationship to the law as well. What his expectations are for how we live and how we get the power to actually live it. So pretty significant stuff. All right, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, so not even the smallest strike of the pen, that's what he's saying, not the smallest piece of writing will pass from the law until all is accomplished. All right, so when Jesus says the law and the prophets, that was a common way of summarizing essentially the entire Old Testament. So he's talking here about the Bible. And I think he's not, this applies not only to the Old Testament, but applies to the entire scriptures as a whole. And within this, we can make some really key inferences, some amazing things about what the truth is that's been revealed to us in scripture. So here's the first one. The words of Jesus and the words of the Bible are the same. So the entire Bible is a red letter Bible. Okay, have you ever had a red letter Bible where it's like everything is normal text, but then when you get to the teachings of Jesus, everything's in red to kind of distinguish what he's saying? But here's the theological point that Jesus is making as he's associating himself, not with abolishing the law, but fulfilling the law, is he's saying that everything in scripture is written about me, through me, and for me. He's associating himself with the entire thing, and he's saying everything in, Bi in the Bible is his words. And so whether you're reading Paul in the New Testament or Moses in the Old Testament, it carries the same weight and authority as the words of Jesus themselves. So even this sermon itself that is a direct quote from Jesus Christ, if you're reading anything out of the Old Testament, it's as if Jesus spoke that word to you in the exact same way as he did in this sermon. Now, a lot of people will try and differentiate between the Bible and Jesus, and maybe you'll do that kind of formally. So, so maybe you'll say, I, I, I like Jesus as a moral teacher, but I'm not convinced by the Bible. You know, the Bible, I, I don't really know if it's inerrant, and there's some contradictions in there, and there's some things in there that I'm really uncomfortable with, especially in the Old Testament. Or, Old Testament. or maybe you won't say it like that. Maybe you'll say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but when you encounter things in Scripture that make you uncomfortable, you tend to find ways to work around them. And so you'll come across a verse that has a fairly clear interpretation. And essentially what you'll do is instead of admitting that you don't want to come under the authority of that verse, you'll just say, well, I don't know if I agree with your interpretation. And you'll try and work your way around what that text is saying. Or maybe you'll know exactly what it's saying and you'll affirm it in theory, but you'll be unwilling to live your life around that thing in general, which is actually rejecting the fact that Jesus authored the entire thing. To reject the Bible is to reject Jesus. He doesn't allow you the option of following him without endorsing the entire scripture. Here's the other thing we know about truth, is that the law is unchanging. 
That's what he's arguing in verse 18, is till heaven and earth pass away, nothing will be removed from the law. And here's why that is. Here's why the law is unchanging and consistent. is because of the type of law that it is. So the law of God is not like, say, a speed limit. That is, in some senses, pretty arbitrary and created by human beings, and if there's enough consensus can be changed. It's more like the laws of nature, like the laws of physics. What are those laws doing? They're describing what is true about how the world works. And so when Jesus gives us his law, he's telling us what's true about how the world works and what's good about it. And he's, and he's just giving us the one foundational reality about the good way to live in his world that he designed. He would know. Have you guys seen the doctrine statements in yards? Here's what I mean by that. Okay, you're, you're going on a walk, and then all of a sudden you get assaulted by all of these signs. Some of them are political signs, but some of them are those, like, we believe statements. I've, I think I've got, like, a photo of that type of thing. Now, now okay, everyone relax. I'm not endorsing or denying any of these statements. I'm just giving you this as like an example of the type of thing that you see planted in a yard. And guys, isn't this weird? Like, isn't it weird that we're putting, the only other place that I've seen statements like this is in like church doctrine statements and people are staking them in their yard. Why? Because truth is back, guys. There was this weird period where everybody was into relativistic truth and was saying your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and there's not really one ultimate truth and there's still some people saying that but for the most part people have realized that that is entirely bankrupt. That you can't lay the foundation on your life on something that shifts and changes like that, that there aren't just preferences in the world, but that there's things that are just foundationally right and wrong. And so people are craving something that's real, something that's true, something that they can stake their life on. And so people are coming back to truth, but they don't have a foundation to go back to their truth. And so they say, we believe, because that's the only thing they can apply it to, appeal to, is I believe this, therefore it must be true. And so what you get is the polarized world that we have where people isolate themselves on different sides, fully convinced that the other person is wrong and appealing to the truth that they're convinced of is right, but has no authority outside of themselves. So truth is back, but here's the beautiful reality as Christians, is that we have something that is rock solid and never changing in the word of God, in the laws of Jesus Christ, that we can build the foundations of our lives on. And the Bible, mediated through the Holy Spirit, is sufficient for everything in life. So if you want to know how to pursue joy, go to the Bible. If you want to know how to pursue happiness, go to the Bible. If you want to know what a definition of real success is, go to the Bible. If you want to know what's right and wrong and moral, go to the Bible. It's sufficient to build your life on. But because God's law is the foundation of all things and not an opinion, not just an I believe statement, but a declaration about what is undeniably true of the world, because that's true of his law, His standard can't be lowered. Okay, so look at this. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so incredibly shocking statement there. 
Did you notice in verse 19 that he said, if, if anyone relaxes even one of the least of his laws, they will become least in the kingdom of heaven. Think about how difficult that is. And if that wasn't enough, he drops in that little punchy phrase at the end that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. Otherwise, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so here's what Jesus' initial audience was hearing as they heard him speak these words. None of us can get in. It is impossible to have relationship with God because none of them could even meet the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, at least in their mind, nevertheless exceed them. And so this was like a gut punch to them in this moment. Here's what this is like. Imagine a high jumper, okay? So, so picture like a high jumper, picture the, the big poofy like matte blob-like thing in the back, and you've got like the bar in front of it, right? You, and the jumper runs up and tries to clear the bar, okay? So there's this person learning how to, how to high jump. And the bar's up there, and they're just missing it over and over again. Sometimes going underneath it, sometimes maybe getting just up to the bar, hitting their head on it, right? But never clearing it. Now imagine that a coach comes along and says, and just kind of watches for a while, and says, hey, you know what, I want to help you out with your high jump. Can I help you? And it's like, yeah, sure, help me out. This is hard. And the coach just walks up and just raises it up another foot and says, jump, kid. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing in this moment. And in the context against the Old Testament, it's even more stunning. Because the Old Testament is like a giant high jump fail compilation. Like just over and over again, the Israelites, the kings, the people who are supposed to follow God are consistently failing at following the law. They're not even getting close. And here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's intentionally pulling them in to the tension that we all feel. Whether we're willing to admit it or not. This gap between who we should be and who we are. The tension that some of us are too afraid to admit. Jesus is forcing that tension on his audience and making them live in it. It's like he's walking up to them and he's just slamming his fingers down on a keyboard and it's just this clashing sound and he's just looking at them, just holding it. And you're just waiting for him to resolve the chord like into a nice major chord and he never resolves it. He just holds it down, holds the tension. What will you do with that tension? Because you can't not do anything. And I don't even just mean, quote unquote, in religious activities. I mean in your life. You will spend your life trying to overcome the, tem the, the tension of who you should have been and who you are not yet. And so one of the things that you'll try and do is just to keep jumping, to try and get over that bar. And what you'll end up doing is either pretending or performing. So you'll try to pretend. You, you know that you can't clear the bar, that you can't ever be good enough, and so you'll try to act like you are. You'll put on the show, you'll carefully craft this image for people in your life so that they might think that you're okay, and maybe you can kind of get away with it, or maybe you'll start performing, and you'll just grit your teeth, and you'll just go, I can get this done in life, and you'll just keep jumping, and you'll try to be moral, and you'll try to do the right thing, and you'll try to go in self-improvement, and you'll exhaust yourself. And essentially, this is what the Pharisees were doing. They were pretending and performing, and that's why their righteousness wasn't real. It was skin-deep righteousness where it looked righteous on the surface, but it was hollow. There was nothing real underneath, and Jesus is calling them on it. If you feel 
exhausted in your walk in Christianity. See, Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But if you just feel exhausted and tired, this might be you. If you feel like you don't have any joy, even though the Bible consistently calls you to joy over and over again, but your life just feels heavy and weighty, this might be you. If you feel condemned, you might be pretending and performing. Or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, if it's really easy for you to point out the sins of someone else, but you're unable to see them in yourselves. If I were to sit down across the table from you and just ask you, hey, what's your biggest sin struggle? Is that going to be hard for you either to come up with or either to own it to me? Then this might be you. Or there's some of you that know you can't jump over the bar, and so you just go, forget that bar. I don't care about your bar, Jesus. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to jump over my own bar. And here's what this might look like. It might look like abandoning the faith entirely and just saying, I'm going per- to pursue happiness and meaning in life somewhere else. How's that going for you? Is it working? Or maybe you'll still claim Christianity and you'll call yourself a Christian, but you'll slowly and subtly try to reject, start to reject Christian morality. And it'll start with just a little bit of a slide, a little bit of an unconfessed sin. But you'll continue down that path until you become a person you never imagined you would become. But you start to reject his authority on your life. And you just say, I'm not playing your game, Jesus. I'm going to do my own thing. But that guilt and that shame will well up in your soul, whether you recognize it or not, or whether you'll own it to other people or not, because you were made for relationship with God. And even if you reject him, he will not reject you. He will continue to pursue you with his goodness in the life that you should live. You can't get away from him. It will hound you for the rest of your life. You won't be able to get away. So that's what was frustrating me this week. It wasn't the Bible. It wasn't the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is beautiful. It's stunning. It's good. The thing that was frustrating me is I was encountering the sermon, and I was seeing how much I fall short. And it it just hurt. And it felt exhausting and I look in the mirror of the Sermon on the Mount and here's what I see is just the abject failure of Jordan Adams and some of you might know me well enough to have seen that a lot of you might not know me well enough to have seen that but I know me I know my heart I know how screwed up I am and I can't shake it can't shake the frustration of who I want to be and who I'm not. And I feel heavy under the weight. And that's a little bit of what the Sermon on the Mount does to you. Okay, and it's, it's, like, it's like a COVID test. And that it's not going to give you COVID, but it will reveal if you already have it. And in that And you might not want to take the test because you might want to live in ignorance and just not know and just kind of keep living your life. But once you take that test, it will reveal the problem that's going on in your soul. And the sermon is like that. It's not creating the problem in you. It's revealing the problem that was already there. And it's frustrating. 
Here's what's amazing. Jesus never felt like that. Jesus empathizes with us in our weakness. He relates to us in our shortcomings, but he has no idea what it's like to fail morally, to fail in any way. He has no idea what it's like to live in that tension of not being what he should have been because he always was what he should have been. The, the law and the Sermon on the Mount was easy for him to live, which is stunning because every teacher who's ever lived and have the guts to say something true about what's moral and right in the world has failed to live up to their own teaching, all except one, Jesus Christ. There's two ways to satisfy the demands of a law. The first way is that you never break it. The second way is that you pay for the penalty once you have broken it. So, for example, the law that you shouldn't steal. One way to satisfy the demands of that law is to never in your life steal. The other way is if you have stolen something, to pay back the cost of it and whatever penalty is associated with that crime. Here's what Jesus did, is he did both. In his life, he lived a perfectly righteous life where he satisfied all the demands of the law and never fell short. And then in his death, he took on the punishment of the law. Why? Because you had a price that needed to be paid for all of your shortcomings and all of your failures and all of your weaknesses and sin. There was a crime that you had committed against God himself in your sins and in your shortcomings, and Jesus paid for it. And so he came and he lived the righteous life so that he would have no guilt associated with him, and then he paid for your crime on the cross. Which means that if we are in Christ, the demands of the law are fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you never can be condemned. Because it's been completely paid for in him. It actually would be injustice on God's end to make you pay for any sin that you've ever committed because Jesus already paid for them. And it's not just that he satisfies the demands of the law in our place, but he fulfills it. Which involves satisfying the demands of the law, but is even more than that. One of my favorite texts on this is Hebrews 1 where it talks about what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It starts out by saying that God has spoken to his world and to us in various ways throughout time. Psalm 19 says that creation screams out God's existence, that the heavens declare the glory of God. It's like creation itself has been shouting out to human beings that God exists and that he wants relationship with them, but it wasn't enough. And so then God wrote down his nature in the law, in the prophets. He described himself in written text and he gave us that love letter so that we would know what he was like, but it wasn't enough for him to know him. And so God took that final step where God 
became a knowable person. Where the word of God became embodied in Jesus Christ. His word is in his son. Who's somebody that you really want to get to know? So I've been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis lately. So I just like want to know that guy. I just want to sit down and have a conversation with him. And here's the thing. I can read a biography about him. And I can learn a lot of facts about his life. But that is categorically worse than if I had the opportunity to go back in time somehow and sit in C.S. Lewis's living room and talk to him about life. This is what I'm saying is before we could read a biography about God. But now because Jesus came, we can sit down and have a conversation with him. Before we knew about God, now we can know God. That's what it means for him to fulfill, fulfill the law. And look at verse 3. I love that. The radiance of his glory. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is revealing. The radiance of the glory of God. The Sermon on the Mount is a look at the kingdom specifically because it's a description of the character traits of the king. He's speaking the kingdom out loud to these people that are listening to him, but he's simultaneously living the kingdom, putting the kingdom on display in a way that had never been displayed before. And the ideal of the Sermon on the Mount is becoming real in Jesus Christ. And then in the end of verse 3, it says, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The question, why would Jesus... Go to all the work to bridge the gap between us and him to fulfill the law and completely reveal the character of God and then ascend into heaven. That's what happened after his death and resurrection is he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. But why would he go to all of that work to bridge the gap and then just leave us? To just go hang out in heaven and leave us down here. Why would he do it? The answer is that he wouldn't. Here's what he was doing as he sat down at the right hand of heaven is he then turned around and he sent you someone better. Someone even better than Jesus in the flesh beside you is Jesus in the spirit in you. And so Jesus sends you his spirit so that he can live out his kingdom life through your body. That's part of the hope of the salvation of Christians is Jesus living out his life in and through you. Look at verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Okay, so verse 18 is sandwiched in between verse 17, which is about Jesus' relationship to the law, and verse 19 and 20, which is about our relationship to the law. And so in here where it's saying that the law will be fully accomplished is the transitional phrase between the description of Jesus in the law and us in the law. Why? I think this is what he's saying. Is he saying Jesus came to live the perfect life and perfectly fulfill the law. And then as you get to know Jesus, he came to accomplish the law in you. The law will be accomplished not only in Jesus Christ, but also in you. That's part of the hope that we have as Christians, is that he can transform us into people who can live the good life, the best life that he's described in his law. 
See, the law is first a tool to show you who you really are. It's that mirror that shows you the deformity of the image of God in your life and gets you to feel the tension of how far you fall short. That's what it first does. It's the tool that first shows you who you really are, but then it's the tool that shows you who you really could become in him. Jesus can and will turn you into an image of himself. That's what will happen in heaven, is we will become perfected in Jesus And for the rest of eternity, we'll live out the law in the Sermon on the Mount forever. Where our mind and our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors all, every single time, will be exactly the way that Jesus would have lived. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it. The command to be ye perfect is not idealistic gas. He got that from the Sermon on the Mount, remember? It's not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He's going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a God and goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immoral creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. In Christ, the law is no longer this crushing weight because your life doesn't depend on it because Jesus gave his life for you. Your life doesn't depend on it, but it becomes a picture of the good life that you can live in Christ. And you can start to dream about the ideal of Christ becoming real, not only in him, but in you. And so as he does that, as he gives you his spirit and starts to fulfill the law in you and help you live a new life of actually obeying him, what do you become? Will you become the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Let's go back to that introduction It says, you are the salt of the earth. Okay, so salt in this moment was a preserving influence. So obviously it added flavor to food, but it was a preservative to keep food from rotting. And so this is a stunning statement from Jesus, both about what the world is like and about what we are like. So here's what Jesus just said the world is like. It's like decaying, putrefying meat that's sitting out in the sun. It's dying. Now, real quick, I want to clarify that for you if you are not a Christian. Christians are not anti-world. We're not against people who are different than us. But here's what we know from Jesus is that the world is dying. There's moral and spiritual decay, which I think is pretty clearly evidenced by a lot of the things that are happening in our world. And so Jesus is honest about that reality, but he also makes this stunning description of Christians and, and, and more broadly of the church, the group of Christians, is that we are of an entirely different substance from the world and we are able in Christ to save it and preserve it. Which is particularly stunning when you compare it to what he just said in the Beatitudes. The sentence right above that is about persecution. 
He just got done talking about how we are meek, we're lowly, we're disrespected by people, we're misunderstood, we're persecuted for our faith. And then immediately after that, he says, you are the ones that will save the world, that will preserve it from decay. It's this combination of the extraordinary and the ordinary that is so thorough throughout the Sermon on the Mount where it's exceedingly ordinary people who are failing and struggling but have an extraordinary God who's living out his power through them and is doing things in the world that they never could have dreamed. You in Christ are the hope of the world. And if it doesn't feel like that, if that seems like an absolutely radical dream to you, especially in this moment, think about what it would have felt like to them. Jesus hadn't died and rose from the dead yet. This was just like a ragtag group of people. And when Jesus said, hey, you're the salt of the earth, you're going to preserve the world, they would have been laughing at that idea. There's no way that's going to happen. And you know what he did? He started to save the world through that little group of people, and that movement has spread out throughout human history and created the most stunning movement in the history of the world through those people, and Jesus will do it again through his church. But there's a fascinating statement after that. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There's a really interesting statement because salt technically can't lose its saltiness. So salt is just salt. It, it, it can't be anything but salt. And so I, I think what he's talking about here is they used to collect salt from the Dead Sea. And sometimes if they got a bad collection of it, what would happen is you would maybe have little tiny flakes of salt, but most of what you would have is dirt and sand. And so it wouldn't actually be the preserving influence that it was supposed to be and obviously wouldn't taste very good. And so this is what Jesus is saying, is the thing that makes us the preserving influence is our distinctiveness and our purity. It's our ability to not be contaminated by everything that's going on in the world. But how often do we think it's the exact opposite thing, either by what we feel or even what we think the church should be doing contextually? So by what we feel, have you ever had that moment where you look at an unbeliever and you go, man, I kind of wish I could live like that. It'd be nice to not have any regulations that I've got to live by. It'd be nice to not have a law that I have to follow. I want to have the quote unquote freedom that they have. That is the equivalent Jesus is saying, is saying, I want to take a bite of rotting meat. (laughs) It's just a really dumb thing to do. And then contextually, we tend to do this with the church, where we think that the way that the church is going to be attractive to the world outside of us is if we can start to look more and more like the world. And so we want the church to adopt the moral philosophies that are happening in the world or the social movements that are happening in the world or the lifestyle of the world so that we can contextualize to people in the world. But it's exactly the opposite. People in the world are looking for something different. They're looking for something to relieve them from what's happening around them. And we can be that hope if we're willing to be distinct and pure. That's what Jesus is saying. And so go out into the world and be salty. (laughs) However you were built to do that. And don't try and be salt of the earth like someone else. Don't be jealous of somebody else's giftings. What did God make you to do? What are you passionate about? What are you good at? Do that as a Christian and the world will change. One of the things that I'm so encouraged by because I can tend to feel so beat down by this too of like I'm not being the salt of the earth enough He's not giving us an imperative here. He's giving us a description. 
He's not saying, hey, go make sure you go be the salt of the earth. He's saying you are the salt of the earth. If you genuinely are in Christ, then you are salt. You can't help being anything but salt. You will preserve the earth. That's what Jesus promised. And you also are the light of the world. Light represented truth. So salt represents good deeds lived in society, good works, neighbor love, social action. There's this complement to it of words, of speaking what's true about Jesus Christ, about illuminating the path to truth for people. He says in verse 16, see that your good works are shown to the world so that people can give glory to your Father in heaven. They can't give glory to your Father in heaven if they don't know anything about him. And so inevitably, if you want your works to demonstrate his character, you have to speak about who he is and what he's like and what he's done in your life. In order to bring the kingdom of Jesus, we need both works and word. But Christians tend to get one-sided on this. So either we tend to go, we need to get out into the world and we need to, we need to serve it. We need to do good things in our city. We need to be socially active. We need to, to do all of these practical things for our city in order to demonstrate the kingdom. Or maybe you tend to go the other way and you say social action is a distraction from the gospel and we need to preach the Bible and share the gospel and not get distracted by that other stuff. The king of the kingdom that you're trying to bring both agrees with both of you and disagrees with both of you because it's not one or the other, it's both. Truth without deeds is shallow. Deeds without truth misses the point. Guys, Salt City Church is the perfect example of the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't mean perfect literally there. I mean it that, that we're the perfect example of we're this like toddler church it's just like stumbling and falling that is exceedingly ordinary, led by exceedingly ordinary people at best. But through which God is doing remarkably extraordinary things. In the life of our church, a hundred people have been baptized. People's lives have been transformed for eternity. And we're starting to learn how to better love and serve this city. And we've been able to form partnerships in this city. And we've been able to form partnerships with the school system to try and serve and love kids and demonstrate the good works of Jesus Christ. And some of you, even beyond what we're doing as a church corporately, are just individually serving. You're living as salt and light in the world. Yes, incredibly imperfectly, but extraordinarily because the spirit of Jesus Christ lives in you and so you are the preserving influence in the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for making us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Um, we would not have been any of that without you we would have been dying and decaying. But you came and you fulfilled the law on our behalf. And now we believe, God, sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but we believe that you'll fulfill it again in us. That you, by your spirit, will start to live out good works through us. We want that, God. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to follow you. We want to do what's right and good. We want to live the good life that the Sermon on the Mount describes. But we can't do it. We fall short. We need your help. 
And so help us by your spirit, God. Help us to be the salt and the light that you said we were. We want your name to be made famous in the earth, to be made famous in our city. And so do it, God. We love you. Amen.